Well, I messed with Elsie's mind yesterday, because at the end of our Christmas party last night, she said to me, so pastor, what chapter are we on in Isaiah? 36? And I said, nope. And she went, 37? Nope. 38? Nope. 39? Nope. 40. What? We were just on 35 last week. Yep, and you'll hear why in my sermon tomorrow. So it's now time to tell you why we're skipping third chapter 36, chapter 37, chapter 38, and chapter 39 in the book of Isaiah. We will be looking this morning at chapter Isaiah, at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. And we'll get there in just a minute. But I want to share with you why we're skipping. And the thing you need to understand is, as, as, as we're looking at this, we've been studying Isaiah now for months. And um, back months and months and months ago, six, seven months ago, I told you guys that the outline of the book of Isaiah is actually, um, some people, some scholars think that there's actually three separate books that were all put together. Some say it's just two. Others say it's all one, it's just a different perspective. Well, I happen to be in the, in the camp, as I've studied this, as I've read all the different scholars that I have access to, I happen to be of the camp that it's one book, but it has two perspectives. And the change of perspective happens in chapter 40. And the, the, the reason I think that this is true, well, and the reason I think, that, and the reason we're going to be skipping chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39, is because we've already talked about chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 for the last number of months. Because every time we've talked about the king of Assyria coming against King Hezekiah and all of the stuff about the army that they come and they, the, the Rabshakeh, who is a great general in the nation, coming and standing by the, washman's, by the road next to the washman's field and speaking to the people in Aramaic and saying that God has sent the, uh, the uh, army of Assyria to come and overtake Jerusalem, and how Hezekiah went into the temple and tore his clothes and laid out before God and said, what are we going to do? And how God literally rescued all of the Israelites uh, by destroying and killing 180,000 of the people of the army of Assyria, and how the king of Assyria then left and went back to his own place. All of that took place in chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39. And the only thing you don't know from all of the stuff we've been talking about is that in chapter 39, something significant happens that we need to know and recognize, and that's this. King Hezekiah in chapter 38 was told by Isaiah the prophet, you're going to die. And Isaiah, it says, turned himself while he's laying in his bed, turned himself to the wall, and with tears streaming down his face, began praying to God and saying, I've served you, I've loved you, I've honored you. Can't you please spare me this death, please? And while Isaiah was walking out of the court of, of, of Israel, um, the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah and says, go back to Hezekiah and tell him I've heard his prayer. And I'm going to grant him another 15 years. And so Isaiah turns around and goes back into the bedchamber of King Hezekiah, who's laying on his bed, crying out to God with his face towards the wall. And he says, King, the Lord has heard your, your prayers. He's granted your request. You are going to be healed of this illness, and you will be granted another 15 years. However, you need to know that some bad stuff is going to happen, and your children and your grandchildren are going to be carried off into captivity to Babylon. And what does the king say? Yeah, because what you just told me was in my lifetime, things are good. And I think we talked about that, too, a couple months back. So that's what 36, 37, and 38, and 39 are. It's the history that we've been looking at this whole time. So what is chapter 40 
Well, first of all, chapter 40 through 66 is the second half of Isaiah. Even though it's not physically half, it's the second half of Isaiah. And I want to read to you something that I read in my, uh, in, in my, um, in my studies this week because it was really cool. But before I get there, I want to share one more thing. This is just something just for, for those of you that are book, at, book nerds and you just love to chew on and study and look at structure and stuff. Chapter 40 through 66 is 27 chapters. Chapter 40 through 66 can be divided up into three sets of nine chapters. And that is significant because if, as you're going to see in the coming weeks, you will see that chapter 40 through 48, I think it is, or 40, yeah, 48, 40 through 48, and then 49 through 50, whatever it is, and then the, the final one, there are three specific themes that come about. It's like Isaiah put all of his messages on one theme in this section, put all of his messages on another theme in this section, put all of his messages on another theme in this section. And we're going to look over the coming weeks at what these themes are. Okay, so for for your understanding, it's very structured. It's a very it's very easy. But what's really cool, and this is the thing where I don't feel a hundred percent good about my depth of knowledge of Isaiah, is these prophecies from chapter forty all the way through to the end have a dual message. These prophecies are for the people of Judah who are living in the time of Isaiah. But they're about the future, but they're about two different futures. The one future they're about is about the time when God is going to rescue his people and bring them out of the exile from Babylon. And then the other future that God is going to be talking about through the prophecies is the time of the Messiah, the time of the anointed one, the time of Jesus. And it's hard for me to feel safe and comfortable in my depth of knowledge. I, I've been studying. I have spent hours and hours and hours and hours this week studying chapter 40. And literally, I spent chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Not all 31 verses, but just 11 verses. I spent over eight hours this week chewing on and studying and reading different scholars and just trying to meditate. And I still don't feel like I have a really intense grasp on this. But I have the, the, a good knowledge, I think, that I can at least share with you guys. So what I'm saying to you is I'm coming from this pretty much as a layman. I am not, I am not an Old Testament scholar. I am not a, 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 an end time scholar. And so I am doing the best that I can with what I have available to me. And I believe that I have a good message for us this morning. But at the same time, I have a level of discomfort that is not, not safe to me right now. Because I really feel like I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm not going to say enough. I'm afraid that I don't know enough to share. And so what I'm saying this to you for is I want to encourage you. If there's never been a time in your life when you've actually sat down and really broken open the, the word of God and chewed on it for yourself and studied for it, this is the time. From Isaiah chapter 40 to Isaiah 66, you need to do all that you can to read these chapters for yourself in your private and quiet time and study them because it's important. Craig, I need you to please go up and turn on the fans because I have people who are already falling asleep. It's, I'm serious. It's happening because it's so warm in here. If you'll turn the heat down to 55, please. 
and turn on the fans. I promise you it's not going to get cold fast. But literally, you're all start not all, but a number of you are starting to, to do this already. All right? So let me read to you. There's this little story that this, this uh, commentator wrote about Isaiah. It's not scripture. It's his own conjecture. But I loved it. It says, in order to appreciate what follows, chapters 40 and following, we need to pause at this point to reflect on the probable course of Isaiah's life in the latter years of his life. The last time we hear of him engaged in public ministry is in the year 701 BC at the time of Sennacherib's invasion, which is found in chapter 37 of Isaiah. By then, he would have been about 69 years of age. By the time King Hezekiah died, which was three years later, Isaiah would have been 72. But it is likely that he lived for several more years than this, because tradition has it that he died, Isaiah died, as a martyr during the reign of King Manasseh, who had Isaiah sawn in two. And there may well be an echo of this if we read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 and 37. At the very least, we can be reasonably sure that Isaiah lived on for some years after his public preaching ministry had come to an end. What might he have done during this latter part of his life? As early as 712 BC, as much as 20 years before Isaiah's death, he could see the Babylonian exile was coming. It must have weighed heavily on him. But as far as we know, he did not enlarge on it in his preaching. For most of the following 15 years, the more immediate Assyrian crisis demanded his attention. And with the accession of King Manasseh to the throne and the fierce repression that Manasseh brought with his accession to the throne, it would have become impossible for Isaiah to preach at all. Now, let me stop there for a second to understand King Hezekiah loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he and Isaiah was part of the court of King Hezekiah. And so Isaiah was able to speak to the king and to the leaders of the, of the nation of Israel at the time and say, you guys need to get it right. You need to hear these words that God is speaking to my heart. But the grandson or the son of, of Hezekiah, Manasseh, did not trust God, did not honor God, did not love God. And the end result was he literally repressed and brought back idol worship, and he repressed the true worship of, of God. And the end result was Isaiah lost his ability to publicly speak because it wasn't, it wouldn't be heard. It just wouldn't be heard. So the nation and its leaders are no longer willing to listen. It would only be after they had reaped the full consequences of their apostasy that they then would become teachable again. And then the word that they would need would not be one of judgment, but of restoration. And it is likely, therefore. As the movement from chapter 39, verses 5 and 7 to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11 implies that in the latter part of the life of Isaiah, he was called to a new task to comfort God's people in words that his disciples would cherish and preserve in the dark days ahead until Israel was at last ready to hear them. Now, I loved that little bit of insight because what it said to me was that gave me a better understanding of why there would be a transition in the way that Isaiah was speaking to the people. The first 39 chapters are, you guys need to watch out. You need to trust God. You need to trust God. You need to trust God. Don't trust in these surrounding neighbors. 
Don't put your trust in, the, in Egypt. Don't put your trust in any of these. You need to trust God and trust Him alone because the Syria is going to come against you and a problem's coming. But then there's this transition where He's talking in Isaiah 40 and following of God's going to bring you back. God's going to bring you back and restore you. And they're like, what are you talking about, Isaiah? We're, we didn't go anywhere. What are you talking about? And what this is, is Isaiah literally in his spirit is foreseeing the Babylonian exile. And foreseeing how all of, of the nation of Israel, what's left of the nation of Israel, Judah and, Judah and Jerusalem, as the head of the, of, the, of, the, of the government, literally is decimated and pulled out and left and it's left with nothing. It literally says in some of the verses in Isaiah that it's going to be a haunt for jackals and a place for wild owls to make nests and nothing will be growing and there'll be no cultivation or harvest. It's going to be decimated. And so Isaiah is saying <clears throat> to the people of God, there's coming a time when you're going to be you're going to feel like God has left you. And the reality is, it wasn't that God left you, it's that you left God. And the result is there's a time of punishment coming. And that time of punishment is not going to be pulled until it's fully done. And we know from history that it was 70 years. And Isaiah is saying to the people, but you need to understand that God is not forsaking you and God still loves you and God is going to bring himself back to you and bring you back to him. And when that comes, it's going to be glorious and wonderful and there's going to be some jobs that you have to do. And chapter 40 verses 1 through 11 is kind of like the prologue, the, the beginning it's like, remember if you watch a TV show and it says, we've seen this previously on previous episodes, and they bring you back up into the story. Or they will say that maybe, I saw a show just recently where I saw this really dramatic scene going on. I think it was NCIS I was watching. This dramatic scene going on, and this guy's trying to rescue somebody, and he brings him up onto the dock out of the water, and they've drowned, and he's trying to do CPR, and then it pulls back the camera, and you see the thing 24 hours earlier, and then they go back in the story 24 hours. So you got a glimpse of what's going to be happening. And then you go back so you can have an understanding. Well, chapter 40, verses 1 to 11 is kind of that glimpse of what's going to be coming. Isaiah is saying, you need to hear something, folks. Something's coming. And you need to prepare your hearts to hear it. And as this commentator said, it was also words that they could hold on to as they were going through the 70 years of being separated from the temple and God. So, let's look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak, see, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I say, what should I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, 
O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God! Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This 11 verses, these 11 verses, can be broken up into four sections. The first section is actually just verses 1 and 2. And this is the command of God saying to the, to the prophets, and Isaiah is the one that responds, but he's preaching to the prophets, your God is saying, speak comfort to my people. Speak comfort and talk, speak tenderly to them. Cry to them. Tell them that their warfare is ended, their iniquity is pardoned. That they have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. And there's some things in here that just jumped at me and I chewed on for a couple hours this week. First of all, their punishment, if you will, is over. The Lord is saying to them, pronounce this, that the punishment has come to an end. Well, if you're in the midst of the punishment, the 70 years, and you don't know how long it's going to be. We do, because we can look back. But the ones that were living in that punishment didn't know how long it was going to be. They didn't know when, when their return was going to happen, but they knew that the word of God through the prophet Isaiah had said it was going to happen. So every single morning when they got up, there was this sense of anticipation. Is today the day? Is today the day that we get to go back to Jerusalem? That we're finally going to be released from this captivity? Is our punishment finally going to be over with? They didn't know. All they knew is they had the word of God on it that it was going to happen. And so Isaiah hears the voice of God saying, Speak comfort to my people. Talk to them tenderly. And the other thing that I just jumped on was this. In the midst of their punishment, in the midst of them being chastised for their failure to honor God, God says to the prophets, speak to my people. God didn't say, you speak to those rebellious little so-and-sos. And you tell them. He literally said, speak tenderly to them. Bring words of comfort to them. Do you hear the, the parental love that is coming from God to his covenant people? The ones who violated the covenant? The ones who worshipped other gods? The ones who would not hear the voice of the prophet till ultimately their punishment had to happen? Even in the midst of all of that, God is saying, Comforted. Your punishment, your time of waiting is coming soon to an end. When we will be together again. When you and I can be back in intimate, close relationship. And then we see there are different commands. It says a voice cries. Chapter 3. I mean, chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, what is this referring to? This is Middle East in the ancient times. Whenever there was a great 
victory by a king and he was returning home with all of the spoils of war and all of the captured slaves that were now his to own and do whatever he chose with, there was this huge procession. It was called a triumph. And by the time they got to the city, there was this huge gathering of people. But through the desert, from the place of their of the battle until they got back to their home, there was this huge procession. They would carry all of the goods that they had gotten during the, the war, and they would have all of their slaves, the prisoners that they had, and they'd be chained, and they'd be marched through the desert on this highway, making a place that was plain and, and clear for the king who was following. And so God's spirit speaks to the prophet who says, there's coming a day when this time is over with, and I'm going to be bringing back the things to what they need to be. And I need you to know, and excuse me, not I need you to know, I need you to do this. I need you to prepare. Because it says the time is coming, I believe it's verse 6 or 7, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's going to come a time when there's not going to be any question of who I am and what I am and what I mean to this world. My glory is going to be revealed. And then it says, a voice says, cry. And the prophet says, what should I cry? And he says, you need to understand that the people are, are temporary. All of, the, all of these kingdoms that you see that are oppressing you, this Babylon, this King Nebuchadnezzar, and this King Darius, and this King Cyrus, all these people, they're nothing. Literally, just as you see in the desert, the beautiful blooms and the beautiful green grass in May, all I have to do is breathe on it, and what he's referring to was in, at the end of spring, in, in May, late May, early June, there was these hot zephyrs, these hot winds that would come across the desert. And literally in less than 24 hours, sometimes 48 hours, all of the green grass and all of the blossoms of all of the wildflowers would literally turn brown and just blow away. In less than 24 hours, because of that hot, dry wind from the desert blowing across it, totally gone. And the, the word that God is saying to these people is, you're sitting in a time of desolation because you're under punishment, and you don't know when it's going to end, but you need to understand these people that are oppressing you, in, in a word, all I have to do with my spirit is go, and they're gone. Keep your eyes focused on me. Know my glory. Know that I am your God. Know that I am. I have declared that a time is going to come when this will be over with. And we will be reunited. And then it says, again, the prophet speaking to the people of, of, of Judah and Jerusalem. You guys, go up on a high mountain. Lift up your voices. And this is what you're supposed to say. Behold your God. The Lord God comes with strength and power. It says in here, it says his arm rules. That's talking about the power and the might of God. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. Remember I talked about this triumph of the king coming with all of the booty and with all of his slaves and possessions from the battle. This the scholars think that this idea of, of, of recompense and reward is actually God bringing his people back out of exile. The quote-unquote slaves 
that God had, that the, the king would have captured and would be marching before him is as a show of his victory and a show of his power and his strength is actually in this imagery they believe that, that the prophet was saying when God comes to rescue you out of this time of punishment God is going to lead you back to the place of the promised land the place where you can be with God forever and forever and forever. And the thing that is so cool, and this is the part of it that I just chewed on for so long this week. Verses 10 and 11. He is a God of strength in chapter in verse 10. But look at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. I don't have a reference for my own life. But what I understand about shepherds is that they have to be very careful with the sheep. Because, as it says, if there are lambs, they can't keep up with the flock if he's driving them. So he has to carry them so that they can survive. At the same time, if there is a a ewe that is nursing lambs and has an udder that is filled with milk, the ewe can't go very fast. And again, there has to be great care. Because if you drive them on, if if you remember the story of Esau and Jacob when Jacob was returning after his 20 years of being in exile, and Esau meets him and he says, well, come on, I'll go with you. He says, well, no, you just go on ahead and I have to be careful because I've got... The, the flocks here that have young, I've got my wives have got some young, and we're going to have to go slow to take care of the flocks. That's what this is talking about. That this powerful, almighty God who can do anything, he can bring about this rescue, is also the same tender, loving, intimate, will hold you close and protect you and keep you so that no harm comes to you, God, as he leads you back to the promised land. And the thing to wrap this all up for me, as I was as I was um, looking at it, I was reminded of a time in my own life when I was a brand new Christian, and we had uh, we were living in Colorado, I mean in, in California. Uh, I was a senior in high school, and every Saturday night we would go to concerts at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. And this one particular Saturday night, the band had scheduled as part of their repertoire, there was going to be a drum solo. And literally in the middle of this worship concert, the drummer begins this incredibly beautiful and long drum solo. And the entire crowd gets up on their feet and we're screaming and hollering, yeah! And the drummer's just eating it up. And in my spirit, I didn't understand what I was experiencing, but I knew something wasn't right. And at the end of the drum solo, the leader of the group, the leader of the band, stood up at the microphone. He said, brothers and sisters, we've done something wrong here. We're supposed to be here worshiping God. And instead, we took our eyes off of God and we started worshiping this drummer. And God said... Have fun, but I ain't going to be part of this. And the Holy Spirit left the room. And he said, we need to get on our faces before our Father and ask for his forgiveness. This was supposed to be his night, not ours. And we need to ask him to forgive us, and we need to plead with him to come back and join us 
so that we can continue to worship him. And so he stopped the concert. And we all prayed. And we prayed confession and, and repentance. And we asked that God, the Holy Spirit, would come back into the room and allow us to continue to worship him. And then we did continue with worship. And then the speaker of the hour got up and spoke. But I learned something very, very deep and rich from my own personal spiritual formation, even back then when I was only 18 years old or 17 years old, that God will not share the stage with anyone. He's God. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not co with anything. He is God. End of discussion. And so if you want to play, and you want to have other gods in your life, that's your business, but he's not going to be part of it. And so what I see here in this story in Isaiah was that when King Manasseh got up and rejected God, and then the and I don't have the whole story in front of me, so they're, 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 I'm sure I'm missing some facts, because it's been a while since I've read that, t- that part of the Bible. But the end result was God finally said, enough, enough, enough. And in my mind, it's not in the scriptures, but in my mind, what I see is this. Remember back when Solomon dedicated the temple And remember, it says that at the time of the dedication, that literally Solomon was kneeling on a big platform and praying to God, and all the people were worshiping. And then God, the Holy Spirit, came down and just filled the temple to the point where the Shekinah glory of God came and filled it to the point where they had to stop worshiping because it was so crazy. It was just so heavy with God's presence. I truly think what happened when Isaiah's, after King Hezekiah, when all of the nation of Israel started just falling away from God and falling away from God, I truly believe the Holy Spirit of God said, I'm done, and left the temple, leaving them without the protection of the presence of God, which allowed then the Babylonian king with his army to come in and decimate and wipe out. And if you look at the history of Israel, they literally burned down the temple. They literally destroyed the temple. Because then you can go into Ezra and Nehemiah and learn all about the rebuilding of the temple and how when the people um, came back and they rebuilt after the Babylonian exile, they began rebuilding the temple. And there were some people who were present at the time of the rebuilding of the temple who stood there and were weeping because they remembered from being children what the glory of the Solomonic temple was. And now they're seeing this. So I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, pulled out and left, leaving them defenseless, if you will, so that Babylon could come in and the 70 years could take place. And it was at the word of God. And the end result is a punishment had to take place. But God is now declaring to his people, there is comfort coming. You paid the price and I'm coming to get you and I'm going to lead you back into the land, the promised land, and we will be together again. Now, all of that is the history that we're looking at. But see, I told you at the very beginning, there's, there's something about these chapters that talk about not just the, the Babylonian future for Israel, but also the Messianic story. And what I see in this, and it falls apart, the analogy kind of falls apart a little bit because I don't have all of the answers, is that God has ordained for the people of God that when Jesus left the earth, okay, When Jesus ascended into heaven, there came a time in the history of of God's kingdom where we're going to be only able to discern God's presence through his one-on-one interaction with us, but that the whole world doesn't see the presence of God as they did in Jerusalem. And so the end result is, is that there's a time, we don't know how long it is, but there's a time 
where the world doesn't perceive God. They just perceive everything's bad and everything's horrible and everything's rotten. And what are we going to do? And it's never going to be resolved. And even for those of the people of God, we have the tendency to have that happen. To get our eyes off of God and think, oh, it's so bad and it's so horrible and we're, we're never going to get any relief and everything's so bad. But the promise is that Jesus is coming back. The promise is, is that if he left, he will return. Just as you saw him go, you'll see him return. And when he returns, he will make everything new. And everything will be the paradise that it was supposed to be at the beginning. And I think these words in Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 to 11 are telling us just that. In the same way that the people of Israel going through their time of exile didn't know the end of the exile. They just knew that they had the promise that it was going to end someday. I believe that we as the people of God, the children of God, have a promise from God that we may not know when, but we know that this time is going to end. And that Jesus is going to return. And when he does, there will finally be the kingdom of God on earth. Hope and peace, comfort, love, joy, all of it. All of it. And all we can do right now is sit in an expectation. We have a promise and we can hold on to it and we can know. We may not live to see that day. It may be that Jesus doesn't return to this earth until another 50 or 75 years and most of us won't be on the earth at that time. We'll already be in heaven. That's not our call. Our call is just to be faithful. Our call is just to keep our eyes on the prize, if you will. Keep your eyes on God. Don't allow the enemy to distract you. Just keep your eyes focused on God. Read his word. Pray regularly. Have intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God. And continue to keep your eyes focused on the promises that he is coming back. And when he does, he will make everything new. I guarantee you, as we enter into this next four to ten years, the world stage is going to get really scary. I can guarantee you that. If it isn't already to you, the world stage is going to get very scary. The word of God declares it. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep your eyes focused on the promises he's given you. And you keep talking to the Holy Spirit of God in your quiet time every day. And don't allow the fear to creep in. And don't allow a sense of despondency. But just keep your eyes focused and say, God, the promise is there. And I'm going to have my hope set on that. And I know the day is coming. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. I believe that's the word. And I believe that's where we have our comfort and that's where we find our peace. That we have this promise that will never fail. The word of the Lord has spoken it. I love that phrase in Isaiah 40. God himself has declared and God doesn't change. If you read 12 through 31, it tells you all about who God is. It's amazing. It's powerful. And enough. Enough. Let's pray.